there's more to this life than I thought. And James inspires me. The things he says have encouraged me. It's like there's a walk, there's a path, and it's leading to something more real than I've ever known before, and it's exciting. I get around James, and I hear things that help me in my life, my work. This work he talks about has become my work. I am excited about the possibility that other people could be affected, other people could be inspired to work on themselves, to grow, to, to realize there's more to this life. I do want to talk about thinking, and there's a reason for that, because what we call thinking isn't. Now, the problem with this is that this is very offensive to people. They find this very offensive. As a matter of fact, people find this work very offensive, I've noticed. They found Jesus Christ very offensive. They found Buddha very offensive. They found Gandhi so offensive they shot him. They just find all of this offensive. And it's not that Buddha or Jesus Christ or Gandhi were offensive. They were just people. It's that what they were saying, what they had got in touch with, was offensive to the world. It's like in that Gospel of John thing where they say, the light came into the world, but the world didn't like it. Men didn't like it because they loved darkness more than light. And they loved darkness more than light because their works were evil. Well, I don't want to do nitpicky things about what's evil and what's not. I don't really care. I mean, I do care, but I don't care to argue the point. I don't care to try and explain it to someone who doesn't understand it because understanding is a force that you have to create in yourself. And if you create that force in yourself, then you will have understanding. And if you don't, then you will look to someone else to try and create it for you. And there's no way because this is self-development, which is a big problem. So we're going to talk about thinking. And what we call thinking isn't really thinking. It's a bit more like dominoes falling into one another in a chain reaction. Have you ever seen those things where they'll fill a whole theater or a whole stage or sometimes a whole football field with dominoes and all these different designs and they'll just push one of them over and the dominoes will start to fall and go in all different directions and there's just this wave that goes on and on and on and on and on. That is what it's like for us to think. I did get an interesting email this morning and the person said, I began my new meditation practice. I started with 15 minutes and it goes by amazingly quickly. I can't believe how noisy it is in there. Does it ever get quieter, or is the goal simply to not identify with what arises? And the funny part is, the reason 15 minutes goes so quickly is because it's filled up with thoughts. And it's like the dominoes. They'll spend sometimes days or weeks setting up those dominoes, thousands and thousands of dominoes. But it only takes a fraction. It may take a minute if it's really big. It may take a minute for all the dominoes to fall. So they all happen so quickly. So of course the 15 minutes goes quickly or the half an hour. Well, later it won't be like that. Later, as you begin to sharpen your concentration, later as you begin to learn how to not identify with your thoughts, later as you begin to learn how to not go with them when they drag you away, when the dominoes no longer push you and drive you wherever they're going. Later, it won't go so quickly. Later, 15 minutes can be like 15 hours. And sometimes an hour can be like 15 minutes. You just never know. It just depends. But for the mind to exist, there must be movement. What moves we call thoughts. Most of that is random and associative rather than ordered and directed. There's not much going on for us when it comes to ordered, directed thoughts. We think 
there is a lot. We think that we can think about something and stay with it. But the truth is, that's a pure imagination. We don't have the ability to concentrate that we imagine that we have. We simply do not have it. And meditation is one of the things that shows you that. Until people start meditating and their meditation is really just daydreaming. They call daydreaming meditation. And that way, there's no second force. Because daydreaming is fantasy and there's no second force in that. So there's nothing really to stop it. So you can imagine that you're meditating the whole time. When actually, the truth is, you're just daydreaming. So the difference between real thinking and what we do is like the difference between life and animation. You look at life, and that's one thing. You go to a plant where they make cars, and you see the robotic arms and the robots that are welding and doing, <laughs> lifting this and putting that over there and spray painting and doing all these things. And it's animation. It's moving. But there's no life there. And so with us, it's the same thing. There's this robotic movement, animation in our minds of thoughts, but it's not real thinking because there's no real life there. From whence come the things we call thoughts that move, making the process that we call mind? This is really the question. Where do these things come from that we call thoughts? Our thoughts are not our thoughts. Instead, they're really rather a collection of thoughts that we've collected or acquired in the process of being bombarded by the events that we call life. Life is a series of events. What we don't understand is that we are being bombarded by those events all the time. And all of those events are having some kind of an effect on us, but we don't see that. For example, right now you know, theoretically, that there are television waves and radio waves and gamma rays and x-rays and all kinds of different waves of light energy that are passing through this room. They're passing through the walls, they're passing through your body, they're bouncing off of you. What we don't understand ordinarily is that they are affecting us. We don't know that. For example, somebody can be outside and there'll be ultraviolet rays that they can't see emanating from the sun and they will be bombarding their body through their clothing unless they have clothing that is able to block ultraviolet rays. And unless they have some kind of sunblock that's able to block ultraviolet rays, unless they have sunglasses that are able to block ultraviolet rays, those ultraviolet rays are bombarding them. In Russia, in Moscow, I can't remember when it was exactly, but there was a time in, in Moscow when the Russians were microwaving the American embassy. They had microwave dishes set up, and they were beaming microwaves at the American embassy. And people were growing tumors. And they didn't figure this out until they finally realized, they finally tested and found the microwaves being beamed there. And so what they did then was they had to rebuild the entire building. And how they did that was they lined it with copper. What did they call that stuff? Copper mesh. Copper mesh, exactly. They lined it with copper mesh. And that would stop a lot of these rays from coming in. And a lot of, it would stop the external listening devices and things like that. But it would also stop the rays that were being beamed in that were growing tumors in people. We also know, and of course this is a thing that we don't talk about because big business is behind it and we don't want to know about this, but we know that people who live under power lines have a greater incidence of cancer, that they grow tumors at a much higher rate and much more often than people who don't live under power lines. So we know that a lot of the electricity is escaping. A lot of the energy is escaping through the lines. 
they know that. I mean, the power company knows that. They understand that they're going to send this much power. It'll start this much power here. How much actual power gets to the site will be dependent upon the size of the line and the resistance on the line, and there will be loss, basically, and how well the line is insulated like that. So there will be loss. So there will be an escape of power. Well, that power goes somewhere. And if that power goes into human beings and animals, it can create problems it can screw up their electromagnetic field. We all have electromagnetic fields. So these are things that are all scientific facts that we're able to prove, though we won't talk about them openly, because it makes it look like big corporations don't really care about us. It makes it look like they only care about profit and the bottom line, and they don't really care how many people they hurt. It makes it look like, like you know, General Mills doesn't really care about what people eat. They just care that people buy their product and eat it. And whatever it does to them, well, then that's fire beware thing. So there's this whole thing where we just won't look at things. Well, isn't it interesting that that's how we are about ourselves? There are certain things we just won't look at about ourselves. We just won't acknowledge. We don't want to know. So where are all these things coming from, these thoughts? And the truth is, is that they're not really our thoughts. Where do you start off getting thoughts? It starts with the people who raise us. The people who raise us, and usually that's a mother and a father, you know, your family raises you. Usually that's how it works. Now, if it isn't, if your aunt and your uncle raised you or your grandparents or your fo or fa foster parents or you're raised in an institution, wherever you were raised or you were, or you were raised by wolves, whatever, you get your thoughts, you acquire a whole set of thoughts, a whole system from those people or those wolves or whatever. I was born and raised Catholic because my parents were Catholics. I thought Catholic thoughts. They were Democrats also. So I thought Democrat thoughts. None of these thoughts were mine. They did not belong to me. I did not produce those thoughts. I acquired those thoughts from being around other people in life, the people who were close to me, other sleeping people, the work would say. They had been passed down from generation to generation with very little alteration or deviation. And the reason there was very little alteration or deviation is because there is very little thinking involved in any of this. I remember when John Kennedy ran against Richard Nixon, our high school held kind of a mock election for the kids in school. And I was like, I think probably in ninth grade. And they had this election, and we were supposed to vote for whichever candidate we thought was the best candidate. Well, I remember this distinctly. There was no question about this. John Kennedy was the best candidate. I had no idea who he was, other than I knew my parents thought this guy was great. This was the guy. And Richard Nixon was not the best candidate. And I had no idea who he was, none whatsoever. I knew nothing about the man. I could recognize him because they were both on television. They had televised debates, and I remember that. I remember my parents watching that, and we were there too. And here we were watching this really smooth guy, John Kennedy, burying this other guy who just didn't present well on television. And I didn't know who either of them were, but I was absolutely convinced beyond any shadow of a doubt that John Kennedy was the guy who, was, who should be president and Richard Nixon would be a bad choice. So who did I vote for in the election? Well, I voted for who my parents were going to vote for. Now, of course, the people in the high school must have known this. You know, the adults must have known the kids were all going to vote for whoever their parents said to vote for. And so what they were doing is they were finding out, you know, which way it was going in that town. Not by asking the parents, but by asking the children. Because the children were going to have the same thoughts that the parents had. Why? Because they had acquired them. Before that, I remember it was Adlai Stevenson. 
a man about whom I knew literally nothing except his name. But I was absolutely sure, and for years after high school, years after Adlai Stevenson was dead, I still stood up for Adlai Stevenson. What a great man he was. I have no clue of what he stood for. I knew nothing about him. I went and looked up on Wikipedia yesterday, Adlai Stevenson, just to find something out about him. I thought, I don't even recognize the picture. I didn't recognize anything about him. But in my psychology was this big thing built up around Adlai Stevenson about what a great man he was and what a great president he would have been and how much better he would have been than Eisenhower. And he ran twice and he lost twice. So I know that from Wikipedia. Other than that, it's all imagination. It's all craziness that I inherited. It's all acquired and it has nothing whatever to do with thinking. Yet... People will take that and go to war and kill one another without ever having a real thought about it, without ever thinking for themselves for even a nanosecond. They will not have a thought. They will have instead this domino effect. So that's why we're talking about thinking. The work would say, I was passive to my parents. Well, we all start out pretty passive to our parents. What that means is we accept what they tell us. We're passive to it. We just accept it. They tell us, this is the best candidate. We believe that's the best candidate. Then we think, quote, we think that we know the best candidate. We think these are our thoughts, when actually they're not our thoughts at all. If I'd been for Nixon, the work would say, I was reacting to my parents. So if I go with John Kennedy and I agree with my parents, then I'm passive to my parents. But if I disagree with them for some reason and I go against them and say, go to the high school election and vote for Richard Nixon, then I'm reacting to my parents. Now, this is what the work says. And some people might say, oh, but wouldn't it mean that you just thought about it? No. As a rule, that's not what it would mean. As a rule, what it means is we react or we're passive. That's what it means. But I don't think so. Well, then go do some other work. That's what I have to say to you. Then, then go figure it out yourself. Then don't do this. If you already know all the answers, then your life is just fine. So everything's great. Why are you listening to me? Why are you interested in this work? Spiritually, this is a fundamental conflict. And it's also the beginning of our development. Now, what people don't understand is this is necessary. People think, oh, that's such a bad thing. No, it's not a bad thing at all. It's necessary. This is something that has to be. It's part of development. It's part of our spiritual development. If we wish to develop, we will have this fundamental conflict in the beginning. We acquire a psychology from our parents that may serve us for the first few stages of life. Now... For the first few stages of life, it serves us. We can function in the world. We start to see how things work. And then later, it doesn't serve us. It serves us less and less and less. So there's a diminishing return on the service that the acquired psychology offers to us. If we follow it passively, we can't grow spiritually. We can't grow psychologically. Jesus put it this way in Luke chapter 14, verse 26. He said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Well, people have gone crackers over this for 2,000 years. Taken literally, this is insane. And it is contrary to other things that are said. For example, if you'll think about the fourth commandment. The fourth commandment is honor your mother and your father so that it may go well with you. It's the only commandment with a promise. If you do this, it will go well with you. If you honor your father and your mother, it will go well with you. So this goes directly against that, literally. 
If you look at it literally, it goes directly against that. Now, remember that Jesus also said, look, I did not come, I came to fulfill the law, not to break it, but to fulfill it. So he didn't come to put aside the law of Moses or to say, no, that was all wrong. He said he came to fulfill it so that we could understand whatever it was that we did not really understand about it. And there was a lot that people didn't understand about it. Well, what's changed in the last 4,000 years? Nothing. People still don't understand it. They still take it at the stone level of truth. And it's still very difficult for people to get the esoteric meaning of things because they do not know how to separate from life, how to separate from what is acquired and begin to allow to grow what is real in them, what is their own. So taken literally, like I said, it makes no sense and conflicts with the fourth commandment. Its meaning, of course, is esoteric, which means hidden. It's not outer, it's not obvious, it's not literal. So when you hear, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, you think, oh, that's wrong, that's terrible. Or you think, yeah, that's a good idea, I hate my mother and father, because some people do. What it means is that we're stuck in opposites. We either agree or resist what we acquire from our parents. We agree with it or we resist it. Either we say yes to it or we say no to it. But we don't really say yes or no to it because it never comes to a conscious thought. It's simply some kind of reaction or other. If your parents are very religious, for example, you're either very religious or you hate religion. How many people do you know who were raised as children in the church and now they are complete atheists and anti-everything that's religious? Anti-God, anti... You were like that, Rex. You were raised a Mormon, and when you graduated from high school, like, how long did it take you? Right away, it was like, boom. Like, was, how long after high school did you leave? Right at high school, I left. So... The day that I graduated. So the day you graduated, you left. And there you go. It's like this is resistance to the acquired psychology of the parents. That's what that is. Now, there are other people who go right into the church, marry into the church, do all of the church things, and they just do that. And that's being passive. And when do they ever think? I'm sure you thought you thought. I'm sure you thought, oh, I'm doing this because I want to. The truth is, you did that because you were reacting. You just were reacting. got to get out of here. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I just got to go. If you know what the work is about, you can reconcile the opposites with your own private thinking. But how many people really know what the work is about? When we begin thinking for ourselves, we find we're no longer in opposition to our parents, though we may think differently from our parents. Now, I know that there are people in the work, what their parents said was it. That was it. They followed what their parents said. They were terrified of disobeying their parents. Grown men and women, terrified of disagreeing with their parents, thinking that they would lose their salvation, that they would lose everything if they disagree with their parents. So they disagreed with their parents secretly, and they hid it. And, or they agreed with their parents and just went along with everything, and that was that. But then, as they got into the work, little by little, they started to realize that it was okay to have different ideas than their parents had. They started to actually think for themselves. Something else started to happen in them. They were no longer in opposition to their parents, even though they were thinking differently from their parents. Work ideas gradually produce metanoia, which basically is change of mind in us. It's balancing many apparent contradictions and opposites. This slowly begins to happen as we begin to understand this work and apply the ideas that are taught to ourselves. If you're not born into thinking for yourself about life's problems, you'll never develop 
but rather you remain a function of reaction or acceptance of your parents. What does this mean if you're not born into thinking for yourself about life's problems? It doesn't mean when you're born physically. It means if you're not born psychologically into a new state of mind, a new mind that can start to think for itself, no longer in opposition to our parents, no longer accepting them just for whatever they said. So we're not reacting and not accepting, but actually thinking for ourselves with a new mind, with this changed mind, with this metanoia mind that the work gradually builds in us or that esoteric teachings gradually build in us. If you're not born into thinking for yourself about life's problems, what are life's problems? Well, all of the things that your parents' psychology that you acquired from them handled when you were a child. What's good, what's bad, what's right, what's wrong, whether to steal, whether not to steal, whether to go to this store, go to that store, whether to talk to these people or talk to those people, who to be prejudiced against, who to like, like that. What was the right religion, what was the wrong religion, all of those things. All of those things serve you when you're a child and you haven't really developed enough forebrain to make decisions for yourself. So for the first few stages of life, it works. And it's a good thing because it keeps you alive. So that's what I'm saying. This whole thing is necessary. It's part of our spiritual development. It's not a bad thing. It's necessary. Now, esoteric ideas bring the sword. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Again, the same thing. Well, we think, well, wait, that's not right. But it's not to be taken literally. It has a hidden esoteric meaning. Why is it hidden? It's hidden because we're blind. It's hidden because we are so attached to the world through the five senses that we don't even know how to turn inside. And it's like the email, portion of the email that I read this morning about how noisy it is in there. When someone actually turned inside to begin to meditate, they found how noisy it was in there. There's a reason for that. It's because they left the windows and the doors open. All that noise is coming from outside, and it's echoing in there. And even after the windows and doors are closed, the five senses are closed, it's still bouncing off the walls in there because it's been let in and let in and let in and recorded. You know, they have machines now that can actually record sounds in a room that are no longer there. In other words, they're no longer being generated by the person or the thing that made the sound. The walls are reverberating back. But our ears are not sensitive enough to hear it, but they have machines sensitive enough to hear it now. So they can tell what went on in a room before when no one was there recording it by the echo, as it were. It's kind of like a reverberation. The walls or the environment has a memory, and it is repeating what it heard. Now, when you look at Cain killed his brother Abel, and God then came along and said, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now, that might make a little more sense. You think, whoa, is that possible? Well, of course it's esoteric. Of course it means your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. You spilled your brother's blood, and that cries out to me is esoteric. But it also can be taken literally when you understand that there's a lot of things that we don't hear or see that are going on. The sliver of the spectrum that we actually hear and see is so small, so tiny, that it's almost ridiculous compared to what's there. To think that we know something, and then we look at that little sliver of the spectrum that we know anything about, it's absurd. You have to think that we are simply ignorant, that we cannot see, that we 
are lost, that we don't have a clue what's going on here, that our clue is so small, that what we can possibly know is so small in comparison, at the moment, as we are, in comparison to what is available to us. This is where the whole idea of transformation comes in, developing your consciousness, expanding your consciousness, so that you can become aware of more, rather than just imagine that you already are aware of everything. So the sword represents, basically, division. And what we're talking about now is being able to divide ourselves from this acquired psychology. The sword of truth gives us the opportunity to divide ourselves from this acquired psychology. Not in a harsh way, but in a way that simply says yes or no. All right, so let's look at it another way. New thoughts never come from either opposite. They come from between as the neutralizing force that reconciles. So where new thoughts come from is between the opposites. It doesn't come from one opposite or the other opposite. Why is that? Well, because they're always in contradiction and opposing each other. There's this or that, either or. We're brought up by parents to think all Jews or all Gentiles, all blacks or all whites, all Protestants or all Catholics are horrible or wonderful. Real thinking means saying to yourself, which Jew or which Gentile, which black or which white, which Protestant or which Catholic? Which particular one is evil or wonderful? You see, it's a whole different idea. It's like you're actually asking yourself a question. Wait a second. Why is that? Which one? Which one are we talking about? What are you calling evil? Exactly. So from this question, we begin to think in a new way, between the opposites. But first, we must have the opposites before we can think between them. You can't think between something that you don't have. You've got to have the opposites first. Slowly something appears in us that unites the opposites, leaving us with no huge opposites, but rather making a place between them. You just become less opinionated. Is what happens with this work. You become less opinionated. Well, what does that solve? Well, it solves an enormous amount of problems in life. Rather than reacting violently or violently, those are the two ways that we can react. Well, it's true. We either react violently in this way or react violently in that way. But sooner or later, the one will turn into the other. So we react violently and we really love these people. And then we start to find something out and then we react violently by really hating them. We react violently by really hating these people. And then we find something out and we react violently by going to the other side and really loving these people. The mechanics of this is the development of the formatory part of the intellectual center, which thinks either or. And from that, through that, as we begin to introduce this question, which one, which Jew, which Gentile, which black, which white, which Protestant, which Catholic, when we start to ask that question, then we can develop a yes and no. And it's not yes or no, it's yes and no. Rather than either or, it's yes and no. We see, yes, there are good Jews, and yes, there are bad Jews. Yes, there are good Gentiles, and yes, there are bad Gentiles. Yes, there are good men, and yes, there are bad men. And yes, there are good things in one man, and yes, there are bad things in one man. It starts to put a point on our thinking. We start wide, and then we come in to more detail. We start with a big brush, and then we slowly graduate to smaller and smaller brushes until we can actually think. As we are, our psychology is based on uncompromising opposites. We see people as good or bad, right or wrong, conscious or unconscious. This is how we are now. This is something that we are living under now. We don't believe that. The longer we're in the work, the less we believe it. 
which makes the work more and more dangerous the longer we're in it, unless we're actually applying it, and unless we're constantly touching the touchstone, those principles in the beginning. You're not awake, you're not one, and you can't do. Those three principles that we need to constantly remember. We're not properly conscious. We can't do, and we are not one. We are many. We're a multiplicity. And so is everyone else we're looking at. So we see then that people are not good or bad, right or wrong, conscious or unconscious. This is a very difficult way to live life because you have to think. And in order to think, you have had to be separated from your parents' thinking, from your required thinking. Somehow, you have had to hate your own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters. Yes, even your own life. What life? The life that you acquired. You've got to get to the point where you're willing to put that aside. And incidentally, what hate means in this? Put aside. We're talking about not hating, but putting aside. We have this other idea about hate, and that's not what is being taught. So thinking from yourself, from between the opposites, from the question, which person, engenders reconciliation. You can begin to reconcile. You can't reconcile if you go limping along with one solid opinion. You can't do it. But if you can get between the opposites, between this opinion and that opinion, between right and wrong, good and bad, if you can get between those two things, you'll be able to have an actual thought of your own. You'll be able to start real thinking. So many people raised by religious parents are atheists or agnostics. It's the same as being what the parents were. Whether they're atheists or agnostics or religious, it doesn't make any difference at all. They're still stuck in the same place. So I know a girl who was raised fundamental Christian, and now she is absolutely against it. And there is no difference, no difference whatsoever. She's still stuck in the same place. So here's what I'm saying. If you're raised by your parents to be religious, and you are religious, you have your right foot nailed to the floor, and you run in a circle. And if you're raised by your parents to be religious and you react and you're not religious, you're an atheist or an agnostic, you have your left foot nailed to the floor and you run in a circle. It's still the same circle. And that's literally what this is like. What we're trying to do is pull the nail from the foot, either foot, so that we can actually begin to walk along with our own thoughts and to walk in a direction that we can choose based on real thinking, based on our own private thoughts. That was a good example. I didn't see that coming. Yeah, I nailed that one. There's no real thinking involved. It's the same as being what the parents were. No real thinking is involved. Only mindless acceptance or mechanical reaction, which is no different. If we're exposed to esoteric ideas and we allow them a place in ourselves, we may have a moment of illumination saying to ourselves, what am I thinking? What does it mean to be a person who believes or disbelieves? So let's take the idea of religion. Let's take you're raised by religious parents and you accept it or you reject it. What happens when one day you meet someone that you really like and you can see for yourself that this person is living a good life? You can see this for yourself. And yet you have this setup thinking, this psychology that says that people who are doing that are going to hell. People who are doing that are bad people. People who are not in this club are bad people and they're all going to hell. You think for yourself. Somebody put a link on the internet about some guy who he was a preacher and he questioned hell and he got fired. He questioned this whole idea of hell. He said, what you believe about heaven and hell says a lot about who you are and a lot about your religion and your God and all this other stuff. And he just was so coherent. 
and so right on about it. He thought it through, and he presented it in a way that you thought, wow, this guy is really cool. He got fired. Why? Because that was not going to be accepted there. Why? Because that's not the psychology of that place. Nobody's allowed to stay there and think for themselves. Nobody's allowed to stay there and have other thoughts. That's the bottom line. You got to go. So you come to the point, what am I thinking? What does it mean to be a person who believes or disbelieves? What does it mean? Now you have the option to actually have a thought between the opposites, a real thought, something that can make a difference. The work begins to act on us, making a difference in our relationship to others. You instantly start to see people differently. You're no longer seeing them in these pigeonholes. You're no longer seeing them over here, over there, good or bad, right or wrong, this or that. You begin to see people individually, and that will change your relationship to other people. It will also change your relationship to yourself. There will be no expansion of consciousness while we're stuck in the acquired opposites. You can see that nothing's going to change. You're stuck in the acquired opposites. It's either or. That's fine. Give me that old-time religion. It was good enough for whoever. It's good enough for me, and that's that. I don't need to ever think about that again. Okay. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying it will stop serving you after a certain point in your life, in your development, and you will stop developing. That's all I'm saying. If you wish to develop, you've got to get beyond that. I'm not saying you have to. I'm not saying that the people who get beyond that are good people and the people who don't get beyond that are bad people. That's not the message here. The message is, if you wish to develop, you must give that up. Or I'll say it the way he said it. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Disciple means discipline. It means you cannot come under this discipline. You cannot walk this way unless you're willing to give this up. So that doesn't mean that you have to. It just means you can't do it. It doesn't mean you're not allowed in the pool. It just means that if you get in the pool, you're going to get wet. That's what it means. If you don't want to get wet, you don't have to get in the pool. Third, or neutralizing force, gives us the ability to see people as neither wholly good or evil. This is such a huge thing. Look at how people villainize or hero worship. First, we put somebody up on a pedestal. We say they're perfect. Then we find out they have feet of clay. We find out that they're not perfect. And what do we do then? We tear them down. We make them wholly wicked. We turn against them. So with the same degree that we love them, with the same flowers that we threw at them, now we throw stones at them. All we do is we just change what we throw at them. What's the difference? There's no difference. That was my point. You've got either left foot nailed to the floor or the right foot nailed to the floor, and you're still going around in that circle. But you're still stuck in the same place. Being able to see through this neutralizing force of the work that people are neither wholly good nor wholly bad or evil gives us a whole new perspective. Here begins something that is very important for us. It's called mercy. What it means in you and what it means to you. Mercy is not violence. Mercy is not violence. Being in opposites is always violence. He does that? I'll have nothing to do with him ever again. The work says, don't you do the same? A sincere person will find after uh, some, well, uh, him hawing and uh, grumbling and maybe this or that. Okay, well, yeah, I guess I have some of that in myself. Yeah, I did it once. Well, if you did it once, you did it. Truth must lead to goodness or it's pointless and dangerous. How can the truth be dangerous? Well, I don't know. Just look at it. Just look what people have done in the name of truth. Look at how many people have died and are dying in the name of truth. It's dangerous. Look at how many wars have broke out in the name of truth. And it didn't start with the Crusades, people. It was long, 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 long before that. Because opposites always lead to violence. Opposites are always violent.
Maurice Nicole said, think very much about what external considering means. One aspect of which is seeing others in yourself or seeing your own faults in the other person. Always an irritating thing. He doesn't say sometimes an irritating thing. He says always an irritating thing. Why is that? Because it wounds the self-love. And that's always an irritating thing. You can rely on it. In all things, try to think what mercy means. Mercy lies between the opposites. I can promise you this. Without mercy, we will never develop. Cultivate mercy. Often the practical application of these ideas sounds like it's going to be easy. The ideas sound great. When we actually run into a situation or a person who's being a little more difficult than we'd like, we find it's not as easy as we thought it was going to be. If you've hit a snag with some aspect of this work and its practical application in your everyday life, I invite you to write James at SolidRockVista.com. Sometimes a fresh perspective is all it takes to get us back on the right track.